0: So at this point, every single one of my listeners has been the victim of some kind of data breach, whether that's getting your personal data stolen from the Equifax breach or some other company that had info on you, but that got stolen. But how impacted are we when this happens? At the least, you should change your passwords and tighten up your own personal security and stuff like that. But there's not much more you can do after that. So we're kind of stuck waiting for whoever stole our data to see what they do with it. And sometimes nothing happens we're just not impacted at all. But I'm willing to bet in the future, we'll all each be impacted by a different kind of hack, something that will certainly impact our daily lives in a major way, like one that might take out our electricity or water, or a hack that might cause a major disaster, like what if a dam got opened up and let out a bunch of water and flooded a whole city? That would have a big impact on our lives. These are true stories from the dark side of the internet. I'm Jack Recider. This is Darknet Diaries. This episode is sponsored by Rocket Money. Are you like me and pay monthly subscriptions to way too many things? By the end of the busy week, the last thing I want to do is spend time budgeting all my expenses or tracking down customer service teams to cancel subscriptions I no longer use. But this is where Rocket Money can help us both. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money's dashboard shows off this month's spending compared to last month's, so you can clearly see your spending habits. Plus, they'll help create a custom budget and keep spending on track. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to RocketMoney.com/darknet. That's rocketmoney.com slash darknet. Rocketmoney.com slash darknet. This story takes place in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia has a massive amount of natural resources, primarily oil, which makes it a very rich country. In fact, the oil company, Saudi Aramco, is probably the most valuable company in the world because of the oil there. And in episode 30, I actually cover a hack that was done against Saudi Aramco called Shamoon. It came through and wiped out almost all the computers in the whole company. It was devastating. But there's another massive company in Saudi Arabia. On the west coast of Saudi Arabia, something remarkable is happening. It's a petrochemical company. The world's largest integrated refinery and petrochemical single-phase project. They produce 140 million barrels of products every year. Produces a wide range of high-quality, high-demand products. They produce components that go into manufacturing things we use, like clothes, to fertilizers, to packaging, to medical equipment, to electronics, to automobiles, and countless other items that make everyday life easier, safer, and more comfortable. I'm not going to say the name of the company. You can look that up yourself if you want. Where innovation, investment, and human potential are being exploited to the full to enrich life. This chemical plant is huge. From a distance, it looks like a downtown skyline of a whole city. Huge tanks, towers, pipes going everywhere, lots of lights on at night. And each structure is a building with no walls. You can see right through it. Like, it's almost a uh, skeleton-like. Very industrial. And it's a massive plant with lots of chemicals, oil, and people all working together to make petrol-based products that you and I use. But in 2017, something big happened there. In June 2017, a Triconex controller shut down. Redefining process safety. These are the emergency shutdown systems. Market-leading Triconex safety systems have, for example, run for more than 600 million hours without failure on demand and are still going strong. Safety systems like this have to be extremely robust and resilient and and never fail. But today, technology is only part of the safety equation. Production complexity, aging systems, changing workforce, cybercrime and complacency are just a few of the factors introducing new threats to operational integrity. That's for sure. Your culture is enriched. Your people are safe. Your business is sound. triconex Process Safety by Schneider Electric. Okay, hang on a second. In order to understand what happened at this plant, we need to learn a little bit more about what OT is. You probably already know what IT is, right? Information technology. It's where computers store, manipulate, and transfer information. OT is operational technology. And this is the hardware and software that's used to control physical things in the world like valves and pumps and other machinery. Think about all the electronics that control a factory, a plant, or a utility company. A chemical and petrol plant like this has a ton of OT systems. There are electrical devices that open valves, pour chemicals, release gases, and pump fluids. But an important component of all this is the Safety Instrumented Systems, or SIS. So many of the chemicals at the plant are toxic and must be handled very carefully. So these SIS, or safety systems, will monitor the environment very closely and trigger a shutdown if anything becomes dangerous. And those safety systems that are responsible for conducting an emergency shutdown are the Triconex controllers. In June 2017, something had gone terribly wrong one of the emergency shutdown systems stopped working. It malfunctioned. And when the emergency shutdown device malfunctions, then if there was a real emergency at the plant, this could result in a disaster. This is a big problem, like when the brakes go out on your car. But when this system malfunctioned, it triggered an alert on another system, which alerted the engineers to go shut the plant down and inspect this controller. The manufacturer of the TriConnect system came out, and they examined it, but didn't find anything wrong with it. The plant was able to get back online pretty quick, and that's because they weren't looking in the right place for the problem. Fast forward two months. It's August 4th, 2017. It's 7.43 PM on a Friday night. Six of the Tri-Connect's safety systems had malfunctioned and tripped an alarm. When the safety systems fail like this, it automatically causes a shutdown at the plant because if you don't have properly operating safety systems, you have nothing protecting you in case something goes wrong. Those systems that had problems were in charge of issuing a shutdown if either the sulfur recovery unit or the burner management systems had detected a dangerous condition. This is a big chemical plant. There are many technicians and engineers who work there and can troubleshoot this kind of issue, but it's 8 p.m. on a Friday night. It's the weekend so the crew was minimal. There's also a lot of vendors who work there who could also troubleshoot this equipment, but their staff is also minimal too because it's the night and on a weekend. Troubleshooting began on these tri systems. Logs showed that some configuration changes had been pushed to the controllers. Now to make a change on the tri controller, yeah, you need to use a computer to interact with it. But someone had to physically be present at the controller to make the change. Specifically, there's a key that needs to be inserted into the controller and you have to turn that key to the mode program. Once the key is in that setting, someone back in the control room can push a configuration change to that controller. Well, it just so happened that someone had left six of these controllers in the program state. That's not right. It's 8 p.m. on a Friday night. No authorized changes were approved for those controllers at that time of night. The key should not have been left on that setting. But I guess it was just laziness on the plant operators. I mean, it takes 10 minutes to go from the control room all the way to the controller just to put the key in and switch it to program, then you need to go all the way back to the control room, make the changes you need to make, and then when you're done, hopefully remember to go all the way back to the controller and turn the key back to the run mode. So it looks like a few of these were just accidentally left in the program state, which was bad practice. And actually, operators had been seeing alerts on a daily basis that the key was in the wrong state but once a day they would just clear those alerts and ignore them. I'm not sure if it was just laziness of the people monitoring the alerts or the engineers or both. Because typically you don't want anyone to be able to make remote changes to these safety controllers. You wanna cut these things off from the network entirely for safety reasons. But when that key was in the program state, it meant it was now waiting for a configuration change from over the network. But something went wrong when the config changes were pushed to these controllers. Whatever configuration was sent, it caused a failure state on the units. It didn't like whatever it was getting and caused a reboot of these systems. This is what triggered the alerts and caused the plant shutdown. This was similar to the outage two months ago, but that one was just one controller. This time it was six at the same time. But what's more suspicious is that because this was a weekend and at night, There were no planned changes to these controllers at that time. So whatever config changes were attempted, they were completely unauthorized. As the on-site crew investigated, they found the computer in the operations room which was pushing these configurations. And when they investigated further, they found this computer had an unauthorized RDP session opened on it. This is really scary. To connect the dots here, some unknown person has gained remote access to a computer in the operations room. And that computer had just pushed a config change to six of these safety systems, which caused the plant to shut down. Something very fishy was going on here. The on-site crew continued to troubleshoot for days and even weeks, but weren't getting anywhere further with this investigation. It was just above their skill level. So they called for additional help.
1: My name is Julian Guamanis. I'm an industrial incident responder.
0: Julian was working as an OT incident responder in Saudi Arabia at the time, and he was told to hop on a conference call and listen to their problem to see if he had any input. Um,
1: the first I was told is that um, we needed to get it on a phone call to um, provide some guidance to the plants as they were having mechanical problems that had resulted in a shutdown. So they only, they only mentioned the one shutdown in August. So all we really heard about it was um, mechanical issues. They just want to have a security analyst on the phone to make sure that, um, you know, there's nothing wrong. Don't, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. Um, just just join the, join the call.
0: See, at this point, the plant didn't even know if this was a security incident or a mechanical failure.
1: But when I probed a little bit further to say, you know, well, what's actually happening here? Um, and they started saying that, um, well, it looks like the emergency shutdown systems have kicked in and shut the plant down. And they don't know why. And um, they're seeing some, like, potentially weird logins, and it's happening on, like, a Friday night. And I just, I was like, almost double-take. Like, what are you talking about? This is probably the most serious thing I've ever heard about in my career. Um, Can we get on a plane now?
0: (laughs) Julian added everything up quickly. An unknown remote attacker had attempted to make configuration changes to an emergency shutdown system of this plant. Why would someone do that? Why would someone want to mess with the last line of defense like that? Without a properly functioning emergency shutdown system, catastrophic results could occur. So Julian immediately wanted to travel to the site. So he assembled a team. Yeah, hi, I'm uh, Nasser al-Dosri. I'm currently uh, an industrial incident responder. Nasser is also an OT incident responder based in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And they called Nasser up and said, hey, get ready, you're going on a trip. My my bags were ready. Uh, We're
2: used into this kind of traveling. I just picked up uh, one of my ready bags and uh,
0: head to the office and was told that uh, we should book uh, the earliest flight, and we did. This is sometimes the life of an incident responder. People have to always have a few bags ready to go at any time, like having a three-day go bag and a seven-day go bag are suggested. Because when you're dealing with big incidents like this, it's best to have someone get on site as soon as possible and help conduct the incident response and in forensics. So Julian and Nasser grabbed their go bags and jumped on the earliest flight to the plant. It was an overnight flight, which means they were up all night getting there. So we arrived there the next day. It was
2: August, hot. It was still early in the morning but it was super hot so we were waiting in line to get in through the security checkpoint and get our access granted. So by the time we made it, the system just decided to malfunction and shut down.
1: I guess one of the funny things we were joking about at the times when we went through the security checkpoint, it was about the time that we handed over our IDs and they started looking at who we were. Um, that the system just shut down. So we were kind of joking at the fact that you know, the IT compromise is so bad that these guys are monitoring the security desk and blocking people from getting in. <laughs> so it was um, it was quite entertaining at the time.
2: So the security guard could not grant us access, so we waited there for another hour, waiting for them to figure out how to restart the system and uh, grant us access.
0: They finally got in. It's not just two of them, actually. I think four of them showed up on site to help conduct this incident response. They break into two teams of two people each and start interviewing everyone just to get a lay of the land.
1: So I, I guess uh, from the investigation standpoint, we really wanted to start at the systems were impacted. So what caused the actual shutdown was the safety controllers. So obviously the engineers had already done some reliability and some mechanical testing on the devices and pulled things like diagnostics logs and uh, other certain uh, artifacts from these devices. Um, so after analyzing the actual. Uh, controllers and identifying this uh, we wanted to figure out what if anything had actually changed on the controllers and you've got to understand that these controllers aren't like um, you know, Windows or Linux machines, they're, they're embedded systems the functionality that you can actually get from these devices is relatively limited especially depending on the configuration so pulling these logs is really plugging in a serial cable and waiting 5-10 minutes until it actually completes downloading the logs and things like that, it's not a, a basic process the other thing you can't really do is actually pull the programs back off, um, back off the controllers, and say, "Hey, this is what's on there." Um, what you can do is you can jump onto the engineering software TriStation and issue a um, sort of like an integrity verification um, command. Um, so this command basically takes what the program uh, and logic files that the engineer has worked on within the system, and then pushes them uh, obviously to the, to the um, safety controller and does like a comparison of uh, what's running on the controller versus what's on the system. So what came back after that was actually um, a number of I.O. points. Uh, there was discrepancies between the I.O. points, which is basically uh, the inputs and the outputs that go to the, the safety systems um, that would end up shutting down the plant.
0: Keep in mind while they're down there working on these controllers, they're in the plant where the products are being created. It's loud, hot, and they have to wear safety gear.
1: So taking a step back from that, we wanted to go, okay, well, if this is um, if this is occurring, how is it occurring? Who's doing this? So again, when we arrived, we, we really weren't sure whether this was an insider that was doing this. Maybe it could have been one of the operators that just gained access to the engineering workstation. Or was this somebody coming in from the IT network? Could have been some kind of uh, contractor. There was a number of plants projects that were going on at the moment with different vendors and things going on. So you have a. a Potentially a number of untrusted parties wandering around that could have gained access to these systems. Um, realistically, at this point in time, the last uh, thought on our mind was this is a remote attack. We were really thinking that it could have just been either somebody messing with the systems, somebody doing something they shouldn't be doing, or a malicious internal party, realistically. Um so, what we started doing there was really investigating the engineering workstations, um, which involved taking uh, triage uh, artifacts from the devices, a number of images and things like that. So, uh, one of the things we were working with that was pretty handy was obviously a, um, a, a pretty confirmed timeline. So we knew exactly when the controllers shut down and resulted in the plant shutdown. So if you're doing an investigation, this is very handy, you know that I can just um, focus on, you know, the lead up to this event, and then really narrow down my search on what's occurring in that time
2: frame. I, I remember the process engineer was sitting next to me, and and I just looked at him, and I was like, by any chance, do you have any kind of HP printers here? It's, it's unusual in these environments. And he was like, no, why? And I was like, there is a folder called HP in here, and there is a Python DL. This is where it kind of clicked in my head that this is something is going on. To be honest, the first thing I start thinking about is I'm in this plant and initially when we went there we knew that it's possibly in unsafe state but you're just sitting there in a place where you're not sure what was going on and uh, to be honest with you it was scary. Uh, it's, it's not something where you know an email is going to go down or uh, these systems especially when you work in this field, this is it. Get drilled in your head. You're not supposed to go there until you get all these uh, safety trainings. And one of the safety trainings they drill in your head is H2S, H2S, H2S. This, H2S, that. It's poisonous, and it just kind of goes to the back of your head that, uh, you know, if something happens, you need to do this and you need to do that. And they give you the real scenarios. It's not something that, uh, you know, it's it's instant death in some cases.
0: H2S is hydrogen sulfide. It's very poisonous, corrosive, and flammable. The safety controller that they are troubleshooting was part of the sulfur recovery unit. This system was in charge of shutting down the plant if there were unsafe levels of H2S detected, but this safety system itself had gone down. So if there were unsafe levels of H2S, there was no safety system to shut things down to protect the people and the equipment in this plant.
2: Knowing that you're in this unsafe condition, I remember I just uh, walked outside and I was like, maybe I shouldn't be breathing this air. It's, uh, <laughs> you get in, you're really scared. It's, it's not an easy uh, uh, thing. Even uh, I remember when I discussed it with uh, my boss when we came back and I was like, yeah, uh, this is a really dangerous situation.
1: I mean, at this stage, when we're being engaged, as I mentioned, it was a couple of weeks after the actual uh, outage had occurred. So management's already done the difficult discussions about, do I start this plant back up or do we need to do further investigations or what do we do? And obviously they come to the conclusion that leaving the plant in a down state is extremely expensive. Um, we've already had to pay for the outage, which is obviously a week or something to get, to get back up and running. So they want to start the plant back up. And even when you've detected these kind of uh, systemally, the, the malware and stuff within the plant, and you're providing a report saying you have an advanced adversary in your plant, um, they're going to be hesitant to even shut the plant down. So you know you're dealing with the hot environment when you're doing the incident response. You know that um, you know, it, could, it could be some pretty hairy situations if the attackers ch- choose to do some kind of Um, If they're still active within the environment, or if they've triggered some kind of backdoors or time bombs in the environment for when the communications are severed.
0: Whoa. This is a lot to think about while on site. Without having any sleep the night before, but Julian and Nasser had work to do still.
1: We wanted to confirm whether or not this was an insider. Realistically, that was our, our main goal. Um, so what we initially did is we identified, um, you know, we identified the malfunctioning systems, which is the controllers. We traced it back to the engineering workstations, um, which then led to the investigation that found the, the Triconics uh, tools, the Trilog.exe and the, the, library, uh, the library Python files.
0: They figured out which of the engineering computers had that remote desktop connection to it and examined it. And they found that computer and immediately took a snapshot of that system, copying everything off it. All files, of course. But on top of that, all the event logs on that system, and everything that was in memory, and all running processes, and all open connections to that computer. And yes, someone had access to this computer remotely, but what did they do once they got in? Julian and Nasser discovered two files on this computer that were the smoking gun. Trilog.exe and library.zip. This was malware, very dangerous malware. These files were used to interact with those safety controllers. And this was the program that was used to push configuration changes to those safety systems. And inside that zip file were the binary files that were sent to the controller. This would be extremely useful to analyze more in depth later. But for now, they're still trying to track down who connected to this computer to put these files here.
1: So from there, what we did was luckily able to uh, trace a lot of the activity through the DMZ firewalls. Um, Luckily, the the plant were capturing both successful and failed connection attempts through the the, the plant DMZ. So leveraging these communications, we're able to trace um, a number of sessions that uh, overlapped with artefacts being created on the engineering workstations uh, within the, uh, the system journals, so the NTFS journal, so we could see the sessions coming through the through a DMZ choke point through a jump box within the DMZ from the perimeter VPN. So we did track this to an external party that was logging in from the VPN uh, through to the DMZ uh, and then through to the engineering workstation and leveraging these
0: uh, attack tools. The network equipment at the plant had some pretty good logging turned on, so it made it easy for them to connect the dots. The incident response team determined that someone had connected from the outside, the internet, the world, and exploited a computer inside the DMZ, a separate part of the network inside this chemical plant. And it was supposed to be separated from the inside of the network, but the attackers found a hole in the DMZ which let them slip through into the internal network, which is how they got to those engineering workstations And that's how they got Trilog.exe and the library.zip file onto that computer. And once the attacker was on that engineering workstation, they got a list of safety controllers and did a multicast ping on all those controllers to see if any of them were in the program state. And that's how they found these six controllers were ready to receive a new configuration. These two files that were on the engineering workstation had some advanced malware, something that Julian and Nasser were totally blown away by, something that the makers of the TriConnect's controller, Schneider Electronic, had also never seen before and they were flabbergasted by it. Collecting these hacker tools was a fantastic find for the security teams to investigate further. But when they looked at the engineering workstation again later, these tools were suddenly gone. Somebody had deleted them.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, you know, they're still active. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we, we kind of thought that they may have um, taken a break after the, the shutdown had occurred. And, you know, come a couple of weeks later, the toolkit's still there. It seems like they probably haven't done much. But, uh, you know, seeing it being deleted like that was a, um, uh, you know, we, we, I, I, I keep saying that we got lucky. We we're lucky we imaged that machine when we imaged it. And um, we found what was causing the outage.
0: This incident response team is good at industrial control systems and OT. They came in, collected enough information, and they determined the problem. So,
1: I mean, at, the, at that point, realistically, we had um, kind of achieved our goal. Um, our goal is to, to realistically do a initial triage and find out, is this just a malfunctioning controller or is this something more malicious? And our uh, consideration at that point was that we had a pretty advanced actor that was potentially interacting with the controllers, Um This is obviously excluding a lot of the stuff that we did find within the environments including other malware strains and things like that um at this point our our goal kind of shifted um our goal wasn't now initially the incident um we had escalated to a cleanup crew basically an external party to come in do a full scoping exercise and eradicate the threat from the environment That, that was um how we handled that our goal from there really shifted to the kingdom so we ourselves had 170 plus plants that have uh, a number of them have you know, Schneider Electric controllers that we needed to assess to make sure that we aren't we aren't uh, currently being compromised uh, or impacted, uh, and we were protected ourselves against that state. Uh, we also looked at uh, communicating with other potentially impacted uh, organisations, so other petrochemical facilities, other oil and gas facilities within the kingdom, because obviously it was a wide scale. Um, targeting campaign, it wasn't obviously just, just the uh, the victim that was being impacted. Um, from there we were also, I mean, Nasser was doing a huge amount of communication with uh, the Saudi government to ensure that appropriate information was shared uh, within the intelligence circles to be distributed to appropriate teams to make sure that they can track what's going on uh, and be across everything that was going on. So we, our responsibilities didn't end at the victim and the initial triage, It, uh, if anything grew from there.
0: Julian and Nasser got out of there. A new team came in to take a look at the problems in the DMZ and the insecure engineering workstations, and of course went through and made sure that none of the controllers were in that program state anymore. Also, it should never be allowed for someone to come into this network from the internet and to be able to gain control of a safety system in the plant. This is a design flaw of the network. Those engineering workstations that had the ability to push configurations to the controllers should be totally disconnected from the network so that a remote attacker could never gain access to them. This should make it so that the only people who can make changes are the people who are on site and authorized to do so. Something big had happened here, something extremely serious and potentially really dangerous. Why would someone hack into this place and target the emergency shutdown systems? After the break, we'll try to unravel that mystery as best we can. This episode is sponsored by Mint Mobile. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Need help escaping from your overpriced wireless plans, draw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages? Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new 3-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/darknet. That's mintmobile.com/darknet. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com/darknet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first 3-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees and restrictions apply. See mintmobile for details. FireEye is a company that is known for investigating cybersecurity threats, and FireEye was called down to clean up and investigate this problem.
3: My name is Marina Crotofil, and I've been specializing on the security of industrial control systems for almost a decade by now.
0: This is Marina Crotofil. As a member of the FireEye team, Marina was investigating the incident. She knows her stuff when it comes to attacks and exploitation of embedded systems. She focused on this malware analysis, and she's here to tell us what was in the public FireEye reports, as well as her independent analysis of this.
3: So, the attacker seems to also understand overall the culture and how the how the plants work. So, they were trying so f- uh, Friday and Saturday. This is a weekdays days off in Saudi um, Arabia. So. And they were basically targeting their sensitive operations like injection of the of the implant to this week day days off, and on the later hour.
0: Okay, good point. They had to know this plant inside and out because, let's face it, IT and OT are very different animals. A typical hacker is not going to know how to work a triconic safety system to take control of it or know how to program it. That takes a whole new level of expertise.
3: And I remember there was uh, one evening I... So once we were still, like, studying the codes and, um, you know, like, you're still just trying to understand what the malware is exactly doing, what is the intent, you're just at the very beginning. And there were, like, function names, and one of them had, like, uh, write Xt. So at the end, it was ext, And, you know, like, Xt, for me, was the uh, first thought, what I was had in my head, it's external. So do you want to write in some external memory? Then I started talking to some guys who has access to the controller and I received a photo of the PCB board.
0: And when she looked at the photos of this device, she saw that the safety device also had the ability to control the valves. What this meant was if this malware was writing to the external memory, it could instruct the valves to operate in an unsafe state, which could cause damage. And at the same time, the malware could instruct the safety systems not to shut down or even create an alert. This meant the attackers could unleash a catastrophic blow to this plant.
3: I got so scared, I could not even tell you. I could not breathe. My hands were shaking. Um, like, I, I, I felt like I discovered so important. And then later on, when I like further analyze the code, I've realized that this is not external, but extended. So if you want to write more than 20, uh, like a large chunk of um, code, then you would evoke specific function, which allows you to write more. So it's not what's external, but extended. But at that time, I thought that I would ha- have a heart attack.
0: <laughs> they realized when the plant shut down, it was a mistake. The hackers accidentally tripped some kind of emergency shutdown system while fumbling around with these systems, which makes you wonder, what was their objective? And FireEye came up with three potential attack scenarios. Attack option one, the attackers could force this plant to shut down by triggering the emergency shutdown systems, basically a false positive. But by shutting down the plant, it could mean a financial impact to the plant. And then there's attack option two. The attackers could reprogram the safety system so the plant could continue to operate in an unsafe state, which could cause destruction to the plant, or even a disaster. And then there's attack option three, and this one is the most scary. The attackers could make the emergency shutdown system ignore unsafe operating levels, and then somehow cause the plant to operate in an unsafe state, So like in this scenario, the attackers might be able to control the valve for hydrogen sulfide, H2S, and somehow pump out high amounts of this dangerous gas, and then tell the emergency shutdown system to ignore the dangerous levels of H2S. If you just breathe too much of this stuff in, you can lose your sense of smell, fall unconscious, or die. To top it off, hydrogen sulfide is extremely combustible, so one little spark and this could cause a major explosion, which would almost certainly result in casualties. As the team at FireEye investigated this, they decided to give it a name. Since the file was called Trilog.exe, and this was targeting the TriConnect systems, they called the malware Triton.
3: The Triton malware, if it would have this damage payload, which was not uncovered, it might keep them up. And it means that the process will not shut down and there could be a safety incident.
0: But this malware wasn't made by someone who was sloppy or unskilled. Marina found it to be a pretty sophisticated program.
3: Right, so the job, let's start with the job. So Triton is as such, a passive implant. And why I call it passive, because it does nothing. It sits in the memory, once you inject it in the memory, it sits in the memory and it expects a certain packet to be activated.
0: This malware was very stealthy. As Marina said, it would implant itself into the memory. That is, volatile memory, like RAM, where the system would reboot and it would be gone. But these safety systems would often go over 10 years without a reboot, so hiding out in the memory was fine. Now, Once it was hidden in the memory, it was designed to act normal, and engineers could interact with it just fine without knowing there were any problems with this thing. What's more is that this malware had to rewrite the firmware in order to be successful, and this was not possible to do remotely as a user accessing it through the engineering workstation. You typically needed to bring like a flash drive to the system and then plug a console cable into it and upgrade the firmware while like physically standing next to the system. But this malware found an unknown bug in the controller, a zero day, which allowed it to elevate its privileges to write into the firmware of the system. So again, for someone to have such an advanced knowledge of this particular safety controller, running this particular version of software, and to be able to craft a zero day to exploit it, this is just top level stuff. I mean, if you think about who could have made this, it first of all had to be someone who had a lot of time because this attack took years to execute, and it had to be someone who has a very high skill set who can hack both IT and OT environments. And then for them to develop this malware, which they probably had full unrestricted access to these Tri-Connect controllers in a lab or something so they could build this on and practice with. Basically, the attackers had unlimited resources to carry this attack out with. Okay, why would the attacker want to get into the safety system?
3: Exactly. And this is where we're really getting into the large discussion also with a. Uh, Human cost of cyber operations and ethics, and so on. So, uh, safety systems are there. So, after even if the attacker would try to like engineer damage scenario and um, execute it using the main control system like DCS, uh, really bad consequences like explosion and toxic releases will be st- will be always prevented by the safety systems. By targeting safety system and potentially preventing it from executing its function, the hacker would allow such terrible incidents like explosions and toxic releases. And so that you would really have a cyber attack with a very dramatic physical consequences. But because people work in those plants and also even in the nights, this may also result in casualties. So you're basically denying... Because safety systems are meant to save life, this is the right of every employee to be safe in safe working conditions. So they specifically target systems which prevent uh, protect uh, civilian people, and this is already off limits. So you know, like you should not be targeting those systems in the when you do not even have like war conditions. So I've been working a lot with uh, international humanitarian. Uh, Institute, international Institute for humanitarian law and with red international organization of Red cross on all of these questions um and you see like yeah targeting civilian protection system is I like not permitted and it's off limits but currently like these operations are not really specifically uh, regulated and this is why it's actually in um, yeah encourage, more active discussions. How do should we need, uh, regulate such operation on the international level? So yes, it's very upsetting that because it's such an attack may, may result in human casualties. Wow! But that's also a really fun, uh, bad damage. So if you want, to, so the reason why I see what they would go that once you want to take a specific refinery for a very long, like take it down for a very prolonged time, you would go for such an attack. So this would be really something very dramatic. But again, this is connected also with human casualties.
0: Whoa. I, I, I can't believe somebody would be insane enough to attempt something like this. This is straight up terrorism. Cyber terrorism. Now, while FireEye was investigating this to try to figure out what was the purpose of this attack and how it worked and who did it, Words started to get out, because at this point it's months after the attack, and many teams have been involved. There was the internal team, and then the team Julian Nasser were on, and then the Schneider Electric team, and also there were other vendors on site troubleshooting this, and now FireEye. And someone within all these teams started leaking information about this attack. First, somehow the US government became aware of this. The Department of Defense began tracking this, but what also happened is that someone uploaded this malware to VirusTotal. VirusTotal is an amazing website, anyone can upload a file to it and when you do it gets ran through like 70 different virus scans to see if it's known malware and then tell you information about that. So someone uploaded these files to VirusTotal and it just came back as unknown. And This was probably a mistake for whoever uploaded it because when malware like this gets uploaded to VirusTotal, the premium users of the site get to see a copy of this malware. So when it was uploaded there, it pretty much landed in the hands of all the premium users of the site. And at that point, the world was not aware of this attack. But if whoever did this attack was a premium member of VirusTotal, now they knew their cover was blown. Another company comes into picture here, Dragos. They also investigate security threats related to industrial control systems. I sat down with their CEO to try to get to the bottom of this.
4: So my name is Robert Lee. I'm the CEO and co-founder over at Dragos.
0: Now, Rob, Rob, Rob used to work with the NSA before starting Dragos.
4: That's correct. So I led the, I built and led the ICS threat discovery mission for the National Security Agency. Um, after that, they moved me into offensive operations of the United States government. I didn't like that. I don't really have a desire to do offense. Um, and I saw a gap in the private sector around industrial security, and I saw this belief. That was forming, that was essentially taking IT security best practices and copy and pasting them into ICS not actually thinking about the difference in mission different in threats and similar. And to be perfectly blunt with you, I would really like my son to have lights and water when he grows up and so out of necessity of trying to get this right, I dump ship and uh, created Dragos.
0: So there's a threat intelligence group within Dragos, which is looking at what's going on in the world to see what threats there are out there against industrial control systems. We ended up Uh, Finding this malware. I don't think they found this malware through VirusTotal, but this is a company who has their finger on the pulse for threats related to industrial control systems. And when something new like this shows up in the world, they're probably going to find it pretty quick.
4: And so when we found it, we had never heard of it before. We'd never seen it before. We didn't know about what had happened in Saudi Arabia at the time. Um, We analyzed it. And we started applying it to the set of intrusions that we were tracking. And and so we made this assessment. Yep, we have enough now, that this is a real set that we will be tracking. And here's this SIS or safety system targeted malware and we're going to call it Trisys.
0: Yeah, okay. So they didn't know FireEye had already named this malware Triton. So Dragos called this Trisys. Just so you know, Triton and Trisys are referring to the same malware. At that point,
4: um, we ended up, feeling very uncomfortable about what we were looking at. And we knew very clearly just from what we could assess and do the malware analysis that we were looking at an adversary that was either already deploying or going to be deploying malware to target safety systems and potentially compromise human
0: life. Now Rob is extremely experienced on the security of industrial control systems. I know this because I actually took a class with Rob at SANS once and he just kind of blew my mind with his next level of understanding of things. He's been involved with some of the world's biggest industrial control system hacks ever. He was there for Black Energy, the attack on Ukraine's power grid, and has responded to hundreds of serious incidents in industrial plants, utilities, dams, you name it. But as he was understanding what he was looking at with Triton, this hit him hard like nothing else has. Uh,
4: To be extremely candid and transparent, I let out an audible fuck and lay and like, sit back in my chair, went, poured a glass of whiskey, sat there, Realizing that I had to draft this email to I brought Home security, understanding what could come after if it went poorly.
0: Rob has a history of working with the U.S. government and feels like something like this is important enough to inform the Department of Homeland Security that hackers somewhere in the world have broken into a chemical plant in Saudi Arabia and had the capability to cause a major terrorist attack.
4: And sitting there reading the report of the first ever SIS targeted malware the first time in human history that somebody tangibly went after human life from a cyber attack and knowing what was going to happen next, it it's a lot to take in. Because I also thought about it from the industry perspective, I thought about all of the conversations that were going to take place, the years of my life that I would then be talking about this and trying to educate groups and talking to engineering, and operations, security. Those are not fun situations. I think everyone thinks these are fun situations. These are not fun situations.
0: Yeah, it does sound exciting to be part of this, but Rob is right. This stuff can get dark and scary real quick, and the burden it brings can really bring you down because it's so intense.
4: And so we elected, we don't we don't always tell governments about what we do. I think it's very important for us to try to keep our customers out of the media and out of government channels a lot of times. But we thought that this was so concerning that the U.S. government needed to know. Uh, and so I passed the information on to the Department of Homeland Security and said, look. Um, this is, this is a very, very significant. Um, and little did I know, I, I think, I don't think they like leaked it. Don't you, I don't think there's any um, badness happening here, but there's a lot of contractors and people inside the DHS. And so one way or another, it made its way to fire and a fire, executive ended up calling me up going, Hey, um, we see that you're tracking this. We saw your analysis and stuff. That's great. And wonderful. FYI, we're already involved. And I was like, Oh, okay, cool. Um, uh, do you, you want to like partner together on this or analyze it? And, and they said they couldn't, which makes sense from NDAs and similar. I said, okay, well, uh, we're not going to publish on this. Um, we're going to report it to our customers, but whenever you guys publish it, let us know and we'll, we'll publish our analysis as well. Um, and so we, I think a lot of people view cybersecurity teams always be competitive, but behind the scenes, a lot of your cybersecurity companies work together um, for the benefit of, of the community because um, we all hate the adversary kind of just coolly. Um, so, anyways, uh, FireEye ended up going forward and deciding to publish this late December. Um, we don't. We take a stance at our firm that we never publish about threats and their capabilities unless it's already going to be made public because we want our customers and the the community to have the information as much as possible ahead of like the New York Times articles or similar.
0: Okay, so back to FireEye. After all, FireEye had as close to a full picture as possible with all the extra data they collected. And after analyzing the code and looking for clues and understanding its capabilities, they started to form an idea of who might be behind this.
3: I think Iran was uh, initially suspected by everybody because it was a logical target. Uh, but it was quickly ruled out. Uh, I think FIA has never confirmed it was Iran, but in the mass media, it was uh, frequently speculated uh, that it could be Iran because it was a logical target. But there was no evidence, and FIA did not confirm that. Yes, and then there was another report that which FIA uh, has attributed. Uh, Activities to this uh, National Research Institute of Mechanics, uh, of Chemistry and Mechanics in uh, Moscow.
0: Oh, what? The Central Scientific Research Institute of Chemistry and Mechanics is suspected behind this? Um, Let me look this up. Okay, so they're based in Moscow, Russia. But they literally seem to be a regular research institute publishing reports about thermovision, gas dynamics, high energy substances. So, in my opinion, they don't sound like a hacker group who would be intent on blowing up a chemical plant in Saudi Arabia. It just doesn't make sense. But, hmm. Hmm. Wait a minute. Do you remember Stuxnet? The hack against the n- nuclear enrichment facility in Iran? Do you remember where we think Stuxnet was created? In the Idaho National Lab or the Oak Ridge National Lab, which are both ran by the Department of Energy and study science and physics. I mean, the story goes is that somebody from the NSA or CIA went to these labs to find people who were skilled enough to develop an exploit for a centrifuge. So, maybe someone went to this scientific institute in Moscow to get their help in developing the OT part of this
3: attack. So it's not really unusual that something what is built as a lab also has a cyber capabilities. It sounds unlogical, but it does, you know, and um it's just that previously we have not really articulated this or never really looked. Into the structure of such research institutions in depth, but um, yeah, it's not a very unusual combination. And they have like a couple of departments, uh, which are related to the advanced informatics and um, security of critical infrastructure. And, and so
0: what evidence is there to point that this research institute in Moscow may have done this?
3: right so fire has laid down the facts pretty well actually so this IP address which is uh, from which they observed uh, intrusion being conducted or at least some operations related to intrusions of the Triton team like in a known organization were conducted from that IP address there have been also that IP address was used to uh, monitor the activities. Like related to publications on Triton.
0: I've also read in the FireEye report that the same IP of that research institute was doing reconnaissance on some other plants and was seen engaging in other suspicious activity.
3: And um, also, a little bit of funny so, Nick Carr was really very vocal about publishing this, uh, like tweeting about this incident and all in the library.zip. Um, There was one of the uh, files, uh, like calculation of the CRC code, uh, was written by Alexander Kotov. So they directly took that file and just used it. And then there was a blog post by this Alexander Kotov, where he described how he needed to write this file, how he developed it. And later on, when they found um, this department of Advanced Informatics from this research institute, they have a group photo. And there is one of the members of this group, uh, looks like this Alexander Kotov, like is they later hired him to work there. And he posted these two pictures. This was a tweet from October 24th, 2018, which, if I look at the photos, it could be him. So it's just a fun fact.
0: And of course, Russia has some very skilled hackers who work on behalf of the government, hackers within the FSB or GRU, which are intelligence agencies in Russia. It's possible that they might have been teaming up with this research institute, which then makes this a multidisciplinary attack. I mean, it makes sense that if one team got into the plant and got access to the engineering workstation, Then the engineers from the research institute could take over the keyboard and go from there.
3: It seems like they didn't have a proper infrastructure, attack infrastructure in place to make sure that the attribution will never be done, including this IP address. Which is, you see, on one hand, it makes sense to move intrusion team to the engineers. On the other hand, you're still better off to conducting operations from the established, like, governmental institutions because you have better attack infrastructure. Maybe they need to work on that.
0: Good point. If it was this research team, they didn't hide their tracks very well, which is something a more seasoned government hacking group would have done better at. Now, once FireEye published a report on this, Dragos also published a report, and in their report they didn't identify any specific group that did this, but instead they created a name for the threat actor and called them Xenotime. When you
4: look at what Xenotime was capable of doing and what they, were, what they did, is they compromised this company back in 2014. And they beelined straight for the industrial networks. They compromised their SMS, you know, two-factor authentication. They, they went directly into the industrial networks after compromising the company. Um, after getting into the industrial networks, they went and profiled, the best of our knowledge, that safety system, and then they left and they didn't come back until 2017 with a purpose-made capability on a highly proprietary safety system.
0: Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. So when the attackers have the capability to spend years fine-tuning their attack, this pretty much rules out any hacktivism groups, simply because the sophistication here is just too high for some teenagers or a ragtag group of hackers to do. And see, while trying to figure out who did it is impossible, we can take pretty good guesses at who didn't do it and try to eliminate certain groups. So next, we can try to look at this attack through the lens of a cyber criminal, someone who would be motivated by financial gain.
4: Yeah, and so one of the things we think about with cyber crime, and again, I, I don't think it's fair to ever eliminate fully, um, but one of the reasons, chiefly, that you would start to think it's not cyber criminal related regardless of the sophistication and aberration is the, the impact and what were they trying to achieve. Usually you think a lot about what's the criminal aspect of this. And there was no financial motivation, um, there was no intellectual property they were stealing that they could then sell off to somebody else. Um, there was there was no return on investment to a criminal enterprise easily sussed out. Like you can always try to connect a million things. Oh, they're shorting the oil markets, or something. but straight away, kind of analysis, it would not rise to an assessment around this being criminal related. As you look at this case, there's not enough to support that it was hackivism. There's not enough to support that it's criminal related. Um, There's not enough to support that it was a a terrorist action or non-state actor. The overwhelming support, the overwhelming um, sort of evidence classification to a hypothesis would be a state actor.
0: Okay. A state actor is a group of hackers who work on behalf of a government organization. And when I think about state actors, the first group that comes to my mind is the NSA. Because they're totally capable of pulling something like this off, and that's what NSA stands for, right? Nation State Actor.
4: <laughs> this is a good question. Like, would it be the NSA? Which, which I I think would um, fail all reason that a strong U.S. ally, um, the NSA, would be going after to cause physical events and try to kill people. It's definitely not in anything that we've ever seen them do before. Um, but sort of, let me let me talk about the attribution in general. My general thoughts on it. Um, so a number of folks a fire i came out a number of folks came out and have attributed this um to the russian government and i am not saying that these are incompetent folks or their analysis is bad or that they're not supporting their assessments so this, i'm not ever trying to dismiss other people's assessments my assessment of the situation and my knowledge of it and working with my intelligence team and, and some really wonderful professionals is that attribution is significantly more difficult than people make it out to be. It's significantly easier to do than the naysayers would, would position, oh, you can't get to attribution. Now, that's not true either, but to get to a high confidence level of attribution is incredibly difficult. And, and my own biases from having worked in the National Security Agency with intelligence professionals is that high confidence level of attribution isn't just related to the forensics and instant response of intrusion or tracking adversaries or doing OSINT. Hell, for us, high confidence would have been, I've got screenshots of the person or I've got camera feeds and intrusion data and signals intelligence and maybe human intelligence. It's like so many components working together to get to a high confidence level of assessment. So a lot of the private sector high confidence assessments I see really would have been low or moderate confidence assessments in the government. And, and I've never been able to break that and I don't try to, again, I'm not trying to downplay anybody or, or similar, but when you're talking about national critical infrastructure and cyber attacks upon it, which is really, really tense situation between state players, the last thing I want to do is have a my firm as an example come out and go, oh, we are, we're basically positive that it's Russia. I'm like, wow, that, that's going to be used. Diplomatically, potentially militarily, like there, there's that's going to feed into broader assessments. you got to be real careful when you're talking national disruption and state tension. Um, but the other reason we push back on, there's two other reasons that we push back. Um, the first is that what most people want, not all, but what most intelligence requirements in the private sector relate to is how to do better security. How do I prioritize things? How do I um, look to better have security controls. What type of behaviors in the environment should I be detecting? What should my response plan be? None of those things require true attribution, of it was Vladimir in Russia. You know, like that's not a, a valuable return on investment in trying to get the defensive recommendations. So our customers and largely our, our wider ICS security community most of the time don't care about attribution outside of a talking point to executives. And even them, it's really just a talking point. Um, They're not actually using that information, but it's a high cost to try to even get that information. And I would argue you probably really can't get high confidence as often as you would like. And then the last thing, without being too worried, but the last consideration around this, and, and again, not trying to put anybody down, but we in InfoSec generally treat attribution as this binary thing. It was Russia or it wasn't. It was China or it wasn't. But these state players are not so black and white. Uh it, Russia has a variety of intelligence uh agencies and military agencies. When we say Russia, do we mean SBR? Do we mean GRU? Like what what elements are we talking about? Inside of that, there's the aspect that they have their own supply chain and non-state actors like our defense industrial base that they're using, they might be having uh uh, vendors of their own capabilities, maybe uh, somebody making exploits for them. Uh, they have allies, Russia, China, North Korea, or Iran teaming up at any given point on different operations, just like we would do with the UK and Australia and others. Like this discussion around attribution is way more nuanced at a, at a geopolitical level than, than I generally see from a cybersecurity audience. And so to just come out and go, it's Russia, I think is... It is not a position that I could comfortably take because of what that means and impact, what little value it has to the customer and how nuanced the real answer around attribution might be.
0: Okay, but at the same time, you've identified a group called Xenotime. So yes. how 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 do you identify a group behind this without knowing who the group is?
4: Yeah, great question. And so clustering on intrusions to form a group kind of diamond model analysis or kill chain analysis, or however you're gonna do it, um, is an effective tool to tracking an adversary in the methods and tools and infrastructure they use to make those defensive recommendations. So if you're going to get to it's Russia, you actually have to go through individual intrusions. You analyze an intrusion, you're probably analyzing hundreds or thousands of pieces or uh, of elements out of intrusion, if not tens of thousands to siphon it down to a set. And then, once you have a set of intrusions and characteristics and similar, then you can start looking at victimology and infrastructure patterns and capability patterns and similar to then get to attribution. So, it's actually not in the other way where you, if it's Russia and then let me follow them, you're first actually creating sets of intrusions that you then follow. And if you go and put the additional work into it, you can try to make assessments around true attribution. So, you're still doing attribution. You're you're attributing this intrusion or this attack that we saw to a set, but I'm not making an assessment about who that set is. I'm saying it's this actor. This this is Xenotime. We can tell that they've targeted other entities. We can follow them. We can track them. We can learn from them. I'm just not going that additional step to put in the analysis, time, and resources to try to get to true attribution.
0: One of the first lines in this rep- one of those uh, reports that I'm reading on, on Dragos' website is, Xenotime time is easily the most dangerous threat activity publicly known. Yeah, easily. can you kind of back that up?
4: They are the only threat publicly that we know of that has shown both the intent and the capability to go after human life. I don't think you can measure anything else other than that. Um, I, I think it's very fair to say there's threats that cause a lot of intellectual property loss and economic damage and similar. But there is nothing so sacred as human life. And for an adversary to specifically intend and be capable of targeting that, that puts them in a special league of their own, of a particularly dangerous and honestly awful threat.
0: I mean, so the next question I logically have is why would somebody want to actually kill people at this plant?
4: There is a wide variety of motives that could go into it. I don't want to speculate. I'll give you some examples, but it shouldn't be seen as as assessments. This is just speculation of what could happen. So first and foremost, if you are a state actor that is competitive with the oil and gas industry in Saudi Arabia, which there are numerous, the loss of life in those plants could not only have an immediate impact on production, could have a, an immediate impact on morale of the workers and similar going back to those plants. It could have a public perception um, issue inside the kingdom that they have to deal with. But a lot of these companies are stock owned and publicly traded. And so you have impacts on actual wealth and and capitalization and future operations and similar. And so you're, what you're basically doing is with a single cyber attack, you have an ability to help destabilize a strategic regional or non-regional adversary. And so if you are a state adversary that particularly doesn't like Saudi Arabia um, or their, their wealth in oil and gas, this is a very effective attack to achieve, especially because Saudi Aramco, even though they weren't the victim, was getting ready to do their ipo at the time they ended up delaying it we don't know if it was related to the attack or not they delayed it but they ended up delaying their ipo until later on and these types of attacks definitely make um, investors and others very very concerned the other aspect about it i mean there's so many different motives you could have a motive of simply using this attack even though it wasn't a training exercise but using it as training too for your own team on cool, can we go achieve these attacks? How could we make this scalable? What's the next level of it? You have to get combat experience, if you will, um, not to overplay it, but you have to get experience as the adversary being able to do these types of things. All, all reasonable analysis points to a state actor targeting Saudi Arabia to disrupt uh, a portion of the oil and gas infrastructure. Why they did that is a very difficult intelligence requirement to have that really... Um, is inside the realm of state intelligence agencies, not something that a private sector intelligence agency could really reasonably get to. It's like a, a step beyond attribution is understanding why.
0: Is this a story that we should be freaking out about? Cause, yeah. Because this could, you know, it potentially target is people in the U.S. or, you know, places like that. And the whole infrastructure is like, ah, is, you know.
4: Yeah, I I, I share people's concern and, and I completely find it reasonable when people are concerned, but I always try to downplay the hype of it. So what's the hype of it and what's the reality? Now, the hype of it would be to assume that this is some highly scalable attack that immediately could target oil and gas companies or electric companies around the world like all at the same time or similar. Um, in the same way that attacks on electric system aren't hype, but thinking that there's one grid that you could take down all at once is hype. And so on this one, How seriously do I take this? I I take this so seriously that when I talk to board of directors or I talk to security teams in the oil and gas industry, this is one of the first things I highlight. And I tell them very clearly, if you do not have detective prevention and responsive capabilities around the style of attack we've seen, not taking indicators of crisis because the indicators will change, but the style, the TTPs, the behavior of the attack. If you're not prepared to try to prevent, detect, and respond to this, you are doing a disservice to your community. And, and what I mean by that is this is the absolute best documented case we've ever had of what really could happen from a cyber attack to lose life in, in the community. And if people aren't taking that seriously in these industrial operations and industrial environments, I think they're being negligent. Do I think the public should be freaking out about it? No. And the work that I see out of these infrastructure companies is that so much work is happening that's not public that they never get credit for. We commonly say, oh, electric utility or whatever is not taking security seriously. That's not true. There are some that aren't, and they need to do better for sure. But there are so much good work happening and and you just don't come out and publicize it. And so we we have to find a balance there. But does this attack and this adversary concerned me, absolutely. And what really concerns me is these attacks and industrial control systems aren't about the malware. It's not about the vulnerability. It's about a blueprint of how to go achieve future attacks. And so you're revealing knowledge and insight that other adversaries could pick up and use. This is how the realm of only state adversary activity gets into non-state actors' hands, is once a state actor figures out how to does it, or do it and publicize it, you get other people trying to do those things in the future. So the the butterfly effect here is that when people start doing these types of attacks, they start to become more common. They start to become easier. And we want to prevent that because these are particularly damaging style of attacks.
0: Hmm. For me at least, this whole attack puts me in deep thought. There are hundreds of industrial plants around Saudi Arabia and the world that have these same Triconnect safety controllers. And it sounds like these hackers were in the network for years before accidentally tripping an alarm. So it just makes me wonder how many other industrial networks might these attackers be in right now, lying in wait, waiting for the need to pull the trigger. And it also makes me wonder how many other plants might have had a mysterious shutdown and didn't have the capability or care to look deeper for this malware. Instead, they just started the plant back up. Spooky stuff. On one hand, I want to know more. But on the other hand, I'm kind of afraid to look.
3: Sometimes you have to let it go because it consumes you so much, you know, that, um, yeah, sometimes you have to let it go. And that's exactly what I did with Triton. I don't think about this anymore. So I'm more concentrated right now on working with, for example, red and with people who involved into the humanitarian law so that I'm te- helping them with my technical knowledge, with my technical inputs to explain them the possible consequences of such attacks and cyber operations on the critical infrastructures so that they could create better laws and regulations. How do we regulate such operations? So well, This is my main focus right now.
4: Yeah, I think when we look at the attribution side of it, where I will say the private sector may not need to go the distance and try to come up with high confidence assessment, I do think governments should. So is it important for clients of, you know, Dragos' technology to know that Russia did this? No. But if Russia did do it, then the U.S. and others do actually need to know that. And it does need a way into um, discussions between states. It could lay way into economic sanctions or others. Like this attack was a very purposeful and blatant attack against civilians and civilian infrastructure. And state leaders around the world need to take this attack, attacks like Ukraine, attack like NotPetya, and actually take these style of attacks off the table and penalize the states that do these types of attacks. They should be inexcusable. So whereas on the attribution subject, I don't want to go the distance because I don't see the value in trying to pin it to any given state. The various intelligence agencies around the world need to, and they need to get it right and there needs to be action follow
0: through. And I've seen the way our nation's leadership interviews people like Mark Zuckerberg. Our leaders simply don't understand technology enough to know what to do about this. And it's embarrassing. Technology defines our current time. There's no excuse for our leaders to not understand technology more in depth at this point. (sighs) Maybe this was all just a test or practice. Since the attackers didn't actually cause damage to the plant other than an accidental shutdown, Because I wonder about the people who were behind this. Did they know this was a mission to kill people? Or were they told this is just a test and that no human lives would be lost during this test? When you look at the code long enough, the malware, you start to really think about that person who wrote it because it was a human who typed out that code. Marina thinks a lot about whatever person wrote this malware.
3: Well, because um, I spent so much time Uh, with his activities Uh, and because you know like it's a very typical research intensive research work that uh, to which I can relate and and I, I actually talk to many guys about that you know like everybody who is investigating an incident and spend a lot of time you know like you start already seeing the incident and can feel more that person, the pain, the frustration, you know, but they sometimes also k- kind of want to see the person. Um, yeah, and I think it's probably, my personal opinion, they probably even did not really clearly understood the consequences and what exactly they are doing. Or maybe, as, as you say, if it was just a test and they knew they never going to disrupt anything, so they didn't feel like they were doing really something dangerous because I would not be ever comfortable to conduct an operation which uh, may impact human life of civilians.
0: Yeah, there is a lot to think about regarding this incident. These kind of attacks on operational technology are slowly becoming more common. We've seen Stuxnet try to disable a nuclear enrichment facility and we've seen attacks on the Ukraine's energy grid and now we see Triton going after the emergency shutdown systems of a chemical plant. It's chilling, for sure. And I just hope that whoever created this is not crazy enough to intentionally cause a disaster. There's an update to this story. On October 23rd, 2020, the U.S. published an article saying, quote, Today, the Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, OFAC, designated a Russian government research institution that is connected to the destructive Triton malware. In August 2017, a petrochemical facility in the Middle East was the target of a cyber attack involving the Triton malware. This cyberattack was supported by the Central Scientific Research Institute of Chemistry and Mechanics, a Russian government-controlled research institution that is responsible for building customized tools that enabled the attack. In 2019, the attackers behind the Triton malware were also reported to be scanning and probing at least 20 electrical utilities in the United States for vulnerabilities. As a result of today's designation, all property and interests in property of the research institution that are in or come within the possession of U.S. persons are blocked, and U.S. persons are generally prohibited from engaging in transactions with them. Additionally, any entities 50% or more owned by one or more designated persons are also blocked. Moreover, non-U.S. persons who engage in certain transactions with the research institution may themselves be exposed to sanctions. End quote. So there you go. But while this is still an allegation that this research institution was behind this, and nothing has been actually proven in court, it seems like Marina and the team at FireEye were right to have blamed them. And now, with these sanctions in place, I hope it's enough to deter them from doing any further dangerous activities like this. <laughs> A big thank you to our guests for coming on the show and sharing the story with us. Julian and Nasser's initial investigation was pivotal to everything that followed. And both of them now work for Dragos with Rob. Marina Crotophil's research and the team at FireEye was eye-opening to the world. And Rob Lee's report really does have an impact and hopefully saves lives in the future. Keep up the great work on helping us stay safe from major catastrophic events like this. This show was created by me, the Crimson Bear, Jack Recyder. Original music created by the Salty Jackal, Garrett Tiedemann. Editing help this episode by the Stardust Kitten, Damien. And our theme music is by the Sonic Panda, Breakmaster Cylinder. And even though when my dad has a computer problem and he calls me up to help him, I remind him about how he used to nag on me to get off the computer when I was in high school. And if I did, wouldn't be able to help him now. This is Darknet Diaries.